Hello and welcome to Talk Gnosis, the web's talk show about Gnosticism, the ancient Gnostics, mysticism, modern mysticism, ancient mysticism, Christian mysticism, worldwide mysticism. I'm your host, Deacon Jonathan Stewart, joined by my co-host, Bishop Lady Peterson. Hello, Bishop Peterson. Hello, Deacon. How are you today? I'm pretty good. Yeah, the, the sun is shining. It's a thousand degrees out. I'm spending every moment I can in parks. Uh, generally, uh, life is pretty good uh, living here at the, the end of uh, uh, time. So, and you? <laughs> I'm doing great. I'm really excited about our guest today. I, I was uh, reading a little bit uh, on his website. Uh, you know, I, I have some knowledge of the Inklings, and I heard the, the name of Barfield, but it, I really didn't understand what that what, who he was. And this looks like a very interesting topic. I'm looking forward to to diving more into it. Yes, me too. And uh, oh, as for usual, I have the wrong banner up on the screen, but I'm going to put the right one on, which is markverda.com, who's our guest, a writer, psychoanalysticist. Uh, and we're going to be talking about his book, A Secret History of Christianity, as well as many other things. Hello, Mark. Thanks so much for joining us. Hi, it's very nice to be with you. Yeah. From sunny it's London. It's even sunny in London right now. Wow, and it's sunny wow. in Chicago. Hey, we're all we're all doing well today. There we go. Yeah, not too shabby. And it's uh it's rare for it to be uh this hot uh, at this time of the year where I am, but I am not complaining. So uh Mark, we're uh, as Bishop Lady was saying, we're super excited to dive into your work, talk about these fascinating figures and ideas. But before we do, uh we have to do a little bit of a commercial, which is for our Patreon, because we're brought to you by viewers and listeners like you. We literally can't do the show without your financial support. You can help us out for as little as a dollar per piece of media if you're on a budget you could actually set a limit on that so if you only want to pay for five pieces of media a month you can do that and uh you can also do one-time donations by going to paypal.com gnostic and if you're unable to help us out financially we completely understand uh it's a huge help to keep the show going by telling people about the show sharing it on your social media taking an episode you really like emailing it to a friend you know yep. that one-to-one -one, uh that really works um yeah. Uh, as well as liking and subscribing and leaving good reviews. And chances are this isn't the only YouTube show or podcast that you uh, uh, take in, so you probably know the drill by now. And uh, if you've watched this one before, you know that I I hate repeating all of this, but we got to do it. But we love you. <laughs> you love us. You're going to help us out. Thank you so much. Okay, it's over. Now we can ascend into our awesome topic. Hello, Mark. Um, okay, so... First, uh, uh, the first question, uh, and of course we're going to take sort of some, some of the long way around to getting to the secret history of Christianity, but we've got to start with who were the Inklings, who was Owen Barfield, and how did you discover his work? The Inklings were a group based in Oxford, many of them actually at Oxford University, and they met informally once or twice a week to bring the work they were working on to each other's attention. The, you had to read something out that hadn't been published and have it discussed amongst the crowd. And Owen Barfield was a direct contemporary of C.S. Lewis, who was the founder of the group. And they met when they were both at university as undergraduates there. Um, J.R. Tolkien was the other very famous member of the Inklings. He was a kind of uh, half a generation older. And Lewis and Barfield met through a mutual friend and Lewis, um, sorry, 
Barfield was never actually employed at Oxford University. Um, he did uh, uh, undergraduate and postgraduate work there, but um, actually worked much of his life as a solicitor in London. Um, but he became very, very involved with particularly Lewis and Tolkien. Lewis, Lewis called him his second friend. And what Lewis meant by that was that you have a first friend who you just kind of agree with um, and life goes swimmingly with. But you need a second friend who you tussle and argue and debate and dispute with. And Lewis and Barfield were very much that to each other. And in particular, they debated and tussled and disagreed about the nature of Christianity. I think when you read Barfield, you see actually more and more of him in Lewis. So there's a bit of Lewis, methinks he doth, doth protest too much. But nonetheless, um, their disagreement about the nature of reality, the nature of things like poetry and so on as well. Remember, they're both um, philologists interested in words, and they both wrote both mythopoetic works as well as prose academic works. Um, so they disputed and engaged with each other over the course of the rest of their lives. You know, Lewis died relatively young in, I think, the 1960s, I guess. Um, Barfield lived actually um, until 1997 um, hmm. and became, in fact, much better known after Lewis died, partly because he came to the US, talked a lot about the by then enormously famous C.S. Lewis. And in some circles, his own ideas got better known as well. Amazing. And, and how did you how did you find out about his work? Like, how did you get engaged? What grabbed you? Uh, uh, what led you uh, to to Farfield? Yeah, it was two or three things. Um, one was um, I, from my own academic career, ended up doing a PhD on Plato, um, but found that even though I'd done this, you know, supposedly higher degree, and you know, it is a higher degree, um, I still thought I hadn't really got to grips with what Plato was really talking about, um, which might sound slightly strange. And someone did say to me, have you ever read Owen Barfield? And Barfield makes the point that in order to understand pretty much anyone before the modern period, and maybe many even in the modern period, you've got to unthink what you thought you knew about them because the consciousness of human beings and therefore the way they write, even if they're using the same words, dramatically changes, not so as to be unintelligible, but so as to make you, for example, in the case of Plato, it's perfectly possible, I think, to read through the whole Plato corpus, even write a commentary on it, and have missed what Plato was really driving at, because his worldview, his experience of being alive, is so significantly different. So that was one of the ways in which Barfield came to my attention, and then that connected too with my own journey in and around Christianity, because um, another part of my story is that I was ordained as an Anglican priest, in fact, and then left the church um, after a sort of first job, after what's called a curacy, um, very disillusioned with Christianity in the church. And now that, that's a complicated thing, as it often is for those of us who leave the church. Um, but nonetheless, a key part of it was a sense that the church wasn't really engaging with Christianity in the way that somehow I felt was really needed. You know, there's lots of ways of engaging with Christianity, but a kind of core part for me was missing. And again, Barfield helped me discover that. Broadly speaking, because what he identified was that this shift of consciousness, this evolution of things, which um, makes Plato so different from us, but somehow still having something for us, that shift 
pivoted, Barfield argued, in the life of Jesus. And that's why, you know, Christianity and the figure of Jesus became so seminal, certainly in Western culture, because something dramatically changed. Um, but it didn't stop changing either. And it wasn't until I'd read Barfield to, in a way, uncover what had shifted in the person of Jesus and then also in the reflections upon his life, death and resurrection that came afterwards, that I began to finally feel I got some grip on this thing called Christianity that I could directly relate to. Mm. Before we, we really dive into uh, Barfield and his, his series about the history of human consciousness and on, unpack some of those threads about uh, how you were talking about how it sort of opened up Christianity for you, uh, there's a phrase that you use in your book that I was wondering if you could unpack for us first, which is fossils of consciousness, a very evocative phrase. Can you explain what fossils of consciousness are? Yeah, words in, um, in, an, in a word. Um, so... You know, as I mentioned that, uh, like the other inklings, Barfield was a philologist, and so they were very interested in the meaning of words, um, both now and, say, for example, how they work in poetry, how they work in mythopoetic stories. Um, but Barfield realised that if words convey meaning to us now, um, you know, we don't just hear sound waves coming at us, vibrations on the air. We perceive meaning with the mind's ears, you might say, when we hear words. Well, if you can have that now, then if you can track back how words have changed meaning, then they become fossils of consciousness, fossils that remember how people have experienced um, themselves as human beings in relation to each other, to nature, to the gods in past eras as well. Um, a, 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 an example he landed on, which immediately has resonance for those who fall within the auspices of Christianity, is the word pneuma in Greek or ruach in Hebrew. So pneuma, uh, so, so pneuma um, it's saying John's gospel. Um, nowadays, you have to decide how to translate that one word. Um, you have to decide whether you're going to translate it as wind, as breath or as spirit. And so, for example, in John 3, I think it is, the translation is roughly the spirit blows where it wills, just like the wind. And so the one word becomes a kind of metaphor to itself as we try and wrestle with what spirit and wind and breath have got to do with each other. But when John, the writer of John's Gospel, first used it, he used the one word. And so presumably there was a much deeper synthesis of meaning now that we have sort of teased apart or has come apart into three. And the way that Barfield interpreted this, this is just one example. He tracked many thousands over, um, you know, the course of time that have made similar moves. Um, he realised that the experience of life had changed so that whereas ancient people, and by that he meant, say, people who lived um, in the first millennium BC, they experienced life, broadly speaking, coming from the outside in. Um, so that they related to the world around them, having been full of vitality, having an inside. Um, and that's what religiosity was primarily about, was relating to that pulse, that spirit, which was felt to be a kind of sea in which everyone swam. Um, that has become uncoupled from the outside, so that now, two and a half thousand years on, we broadly experience life from the inside out. And if you like, the only thing we can be definitely confident of, it feels like, is that our own interiority is alive and pulsing and vital. And we kind of wonder about the vitality of, well, even other people, let alone the world, the cosmos, and 
of course, nowadays it's possible for the gods even to disappear completely from view in people's experience. And so these fossils of consciousness words that might seem a kind of etymological interest, the shifting meanings of words like pneuma, actually show profound shifts in human experience and start to illuminate our own day and why, for example, there are crises of meaning today, because we can feel completely cut off from the world around us, only sure of our own interiority, our own vitality and unsure, even whether there is an inside to the whole world, as Barfield put it. Yeah, it sounds almost like a, a lonely, a lonely way to live. But uh, let's dive in a little bit more. So, you, so you mentioned this this sort of ancient ancient consciousness, how there was a shift. But going back to this ancient consciousness, is this is this what Barfield calls original participation? And and could you elaborate why it's so important for understanding texts that have really become the bedrock of the modern West, like the Hebrew Scriptures, and maybe going before Plato and looking at like the Greek epics? Yeah, so original participation was the phrase that he used to describe this experience of being alive from, say, around 3,000 years ago. Um, so, you know, from, say, the time of the earliest parts of the Hebrew Scriptures or the Homeric texts. Um, and when you understand this, it, it comes alive in a very particular way. So, for example, in Homer, a figure like Achilles won't say they wrestled with their conscience. Um, they won't even say they felt disturbed inside them or that they ran speedily across the battlefield. What they'll say is that a god, for example, grabbed their head and moved them back to stop them doing something. Or they'll say that a spirit possessed their knees and they fled with the spirit's energy into the mm. battlefield. Um, it's very explicit in the um, original Greek that this is how period people experienced life. Um, similarly, in the, in the Hebrew scriptures in the oldest parts, um, you can sort of still feel this now. So, you know, a figure like Abraham the and the patriarchs, Ab Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, um, you know, they feel, we would say now they feel more like archetypal figures. Um, and they seem to carry the mood of a whole tribe. Perhaps, you know, that's partly why they're called patriarchs. Mm. Um, and, you know, when Abraham takes Isaac, his son, up Mount Horeb to sacrifice him, he doesn't wrestle with his conscience there. And what happens is that an angel, maybe even a manifestation of Yahweh, appears to him externally and tells him what to do. So this, Barfield argued, is the experience of original participation. And it really helps, I think, when, say, you're wrestling with the Hebrew Scriptures and understanding, for example, the significance of a figure like Moses, because Moses then becomes a pivotal figure. And I think that you can back this up with historical biblical scholarship now, that the Deuteronomists in the exilic period, which is this pivotal period of change, um, reworked, I think, the figure of Moses to help them understand what was going on for them. Because with the exile, they were torn from the familiar land, Mount Zion, um, the temple, taken into a foreign land um, where they had, if their religion was to survive, to take it in, to make something of it as an internal experience rather than just relating to um, the sacred groves relating to the the lands the landscape in which their 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 ancestors were buried and so on and moses i think becomes a pivotal figure where original participation starts to shift and become a new way of participating with yahweh with the divine so for example you know moses is said never have never to have entered the promised land um his burial place is not known to this day and he's clearly a kind of prophet 
wandering in the wilderness, experiencing often a sense of alienation from the divine, rather than the experience of relationship with Yahweh, which you get in the um, the patriarchs, where um, they never they do wrestle with the divine. You know, Jacob famously wrestles with the angel, but they never doubt um, that Yahweh is there. That experience starts to happen um, to Moses. You know, so he comes down from the mountain. The people of Israel are worshiping the golden calf, and he says, "You know, are you even there, Yahweh? What are you, what garden path might you be leading me up?" He becomes a much more familiar figure to the modern mind. And this, the idea is that this kind of this sets um, a chain of both alienation, distance from the divine, so original participation shifting, but that process also remakes the sense of what it is to be human. And in the Christian dispensation, the Christian understanding, what happens is that interiority in the individual develops to such an extent that people can start saying, I am, in the way they couldn't really have said before because their experience of being human was dispersed and collective. And that, that I amness becomes the capacity to discern God's I amness properly for the first time, as it were. And so monotheism becomes possible to understand and to relate to. You need a kind of gathered sense of yourself in order to understand with the mind's eye, to perceive, to feel the oneness of the divine. And so that's in a nutshell, you know, why this alienation isn't just bad news. It actually makes for an expanded and developed perception of the world and even God too, when original participation shifts. Mm -hmm. uh, before we uh, continue on and, and go through the rest of Barfield's the shift of consciousness schemes and, and the different um, levels, I guess, uh, might be one way of describing it. I just want to check uh, Bishop Laney. Any questions, comments, uh, clarifications? Well, I do have something that interested me when I first started uh, started reading um, uh, Dr. Vernon's work uh, on his website. Didn't get much of a chance to do the deep dive you have. Um, and this may be a more appropriate question to ask about when we talk about withdrawal of participation in the third phase. But one thing that uh, that came to mind, and I understand that we're talking about levels of consciousness here, but um, over the past year or so, the world has undergone a, a massive shift in which people uh, withdrew participation in public life. As a matter of fact, in many ways, in within private life, within our relations to each other, in the workplace, in churches, in community groups, even within families. And I was wondering, um, Dr. Vernon had anything that he might be able to, to offer um, in, if, the, if what he is talking about here with Barfield and, and these concepts, uh, is there any tie-in to what we experienced very abruptly over the past year? Yeah, I mean, I'd like to think so. Um, you know, these, these changes that Barfield describes, including the withdrawal there that you mentioned, um, they take place over cultural time, sure. um, but they can take place at different levels as well. And, you know, people can even experience them on a day by day basis. It becomes part of the repertoire of our inner life. And, um, you know, I think it's no coincidence that when um, COVID first emerged and the lockdowns started to come into place, some people at least felt like it was going on retreat, um, one that wasn't chosen. But nonetheless, mm -hmm. there was a sense of withdrawing from normal life. And that throws you back onto yourself um, and mm -hmm. to those most immediately around you. And of course, can precipitate crises, therefore. Um, things that um, maybe were nascent or just beneath the surface have come bubbling up and um, no doubt caused many people severe problems, um, which will 
probably hear more and more about as things begin to shift and change. Um, but more positively, I hope that this experience of being thrown back onto ourselves also becomes a chance to consider our lives once again, a bit like mm -hmm. happens when you go on retreat. So that rather than just saying, phew, it's all over, let's kind of rush back to normal, to our kind of manic, externalized, um, consumer ways of life, we might say, wait a minute, what was that experience that we just had where life in a way felt stripped down, but did it reveal something about ourselves that actually is quite valuable and that we might mm -hmm. cultivate and try and reflect upon to more consciously own and it's that process of more consciously owning um, that Barfield felt was the benefit of withdrawals of participation for all the stress um, they definitely bring. Interesting. Thank you. Fascinating. Well, let's dive uh, some more into the withdrawal participation. So you did already touch on it both in the answer to that and in your uh, uh, previous answer. But the, how do we start? So we start seeing it manifesting in the Hebrew scriptures. But like, what role does it play in the history of Christianity? So I think what was happening was that um, in the intertestamental period, um, which is not a period, I don't know about you, but I hadn't <laughs> thought about it a huge amount actually till I wrote my book. And I did a lot of research on it. And actually even in the last 30 years, there's been a lot of new research about the period. You know, it's about 300 years or so, the Hellenistic period, um, after the most uh, recent parts of the Hebrew scriptures before the New Testament um, is born. And Judaism changed massively in that time. Um, in particular, it became Hellenistic um, with this merger of Greek and Jewish culture after the conquest of Alexander the Great. And it's, it's for this reason, for example, why there's not a single synagogue in the Hebrew, Hebrew scriptures, whereas synagogues are everywhere in the New Testament. And I think that that's just one sign of many, actually, that the individual was starting to become more important. So that rather than taking part in the collective rituals in the Temple of Jerusalem, people were studying and they were learning in smaller groups. They were relating to what were now written scriptures, which again, didn't actually exist for most of the Hebrew scriptures period, um, relating to texts. And if you think about written texts, you know, you when you when you read a text, you yourself from your own interiority have to make the text come alive. Um, and so it has to live within you if it's to speak at all, which is very different from oral traditions, whereas it were the meaning washes over you in performance, in rituals. Um, in a shared experience. And so all these things were shifting people's relationship to the divine. And I think this is part of the reason why messianism really started taking off as well, because, you know, the messianic um, is a different kind of intervention by God. Um, it, it, it maybe addresses a lot of key concerns that only arise when a sense of the individual is born. For example, you know, if um, people in this life are seen to succeed and thrive, even if they've been immoral and unjust, it calls into question, well, what's the value of the individual trying to be just and moral in life? I mean, it doesn't really seem to deliver any benefits or blessings from God. And so things like the afterlife start to become more important and people wonder whether the individual will survive as an individual into the afterlife, where there they will receive divine blessing that has escaped them in mortal life. Um, and that knits into apocalypticism and so on. And so by the time of Jesus, questions about individual resurrection are alive and current. So hence in the New Testament, we read about the debates between the Pharisees and Sadducees. And so I hope you can sort of see that this intertestamental period is, is really crucial for this unfolding, that when Jesus is born 
and people interact with him, he's seen as kind of constellating and bringing into clear focus all that had been quite confusing and difficult to discern. And over time, it always takes time, of course, a new dispensation evolves. I think there's a parallel thing that happens in the other side of Judaism, if you like, the, the non-Christian side of Judaism, which is the birth of rabbinic Judaism. And there, too, a kind of new way of relating to God emerges, partly through the crisis of the destruction of the Second Temple as well, of course, in 70 AD. Um, but it's a really crucial, important time for the emergence of new ways of relating to God. And Christianity um, takes off, you know, within two or three hundred years as a result. Yeah. You know, I I think this is an important, uh, important readjustment, but but I find sometimes, um, and of course you did uh, formal biblical studies and theological studies in a seminary, so I, I find a really important movement over the last, you know, 50, 60 years since the 1950s is, of course, emphasizing the Judaism of, of Jesus Christ, looking for his teachings in the Second Temple period, understanding them in the proper context. But I think some... In some areas, in some ways, we've overly readjusted with this process, and we've sort of missed the ways where Jesus of Nazareth is is an original and exciting teacher uh, who has some some interesting things to say that maybe his contemporaries don't, or at least if they did, we don't have any records of it. C could you talk just a little bit more uh, about how uh, Jesus seems to be indicative of some of these shifts in consciousness about how his teachings are? You, sort of um, illustrating this this new way of thinking about the self and the world and God? Yeah, no, I, I'm actually completely agree with you um, that I think there has been a kind of swing that needs correcting. Um, you know, when I was doing my biblical studies, it was quite soon after what's now called the, the new understanding of Paul, um, which stressed um, the Jewishness of Paul. Um, but it's a Hellenistic Judaism that Paul is embedded in. He's a thoroughly Hellenistic figure. And my work in Plato and so on made me realize that um, Platonic ideas, um, Stoic ideas, even Cynic ideas, wandering um, individual prophet-like Greek figures. I, I have almost no doubt that Jesus knew and met some of these figures um, in his own lifetime. And so was thoroughly exposed as much to um, Greek ideas as he was Jewish ideas. Um, and of course, they were fusing. You couldn't even tease them apart if you wanted to, in fact. Um, and I think that the key, one of the pivotal, at least, teachings of Jesus that people really wrestled with and even now, I think, don't fully understand. And this maybe takes us onto some Gnostic themes, um, is that the kingdom of God is within you. Um, it's not going to be an event in history that somehow brings all things to an end. But actually, the kingdom is already born within you. So hence the sayings like in Luke's gospel, where Jesus says, you know, people will look here, they'll look there. But I tell you, the flame has already been lit to bring in a bit of Thomas's gospel as well. And I think the reason why you can back this up is because in the, the New Testament writings, there are a variety of appropriations of this apocalyptic theme. And some of them are the traditional, maybe Second Temple ideas, which are expecting an end time. In, t in historical terms but then there are these teachings of Jesus which survive which I think Jesus is saying no the kingdom of God has already arrived and then of course you've got John's gospel where there's no apocalypticism at all it's all interiority making manifest the divine incarnation in the world as a whole not just in the figure of Jesus I think and 
you know, I think Christianity from the get-go was quite confused about this. You see it even tracked in Paul's corpus. You know, 1 Thessalonians feels much more old-style apocalypticism, whereas his later writing, he's talking about the mind of Christ within him. Um, and that that's still... Um, maybe maybe the way it's kind of rested in Christianity is you you get a, a range of views. You have even to this day, um, you know, people who are expecting the parousia, um, some cataclysmic event, um, you know, where everyone will be judged. But you've always had the mystical tradition as well, and um, where it's understood, I think, correctly, and um, that the kingdom of God is continually being born within us, and our task is to become more consciously aligned with that, and that's when the real change. Um, comes about yes and uh a topic for another day but uh you know i can't perhaps as a person of faith i can say it but as an amateur scholar i can't put on my scholarly hat and say that you know paul and jesus were, were teachers of gnosticism but i think that they probably had more teachings and themes that the gnostics later picked up on and elaborated upon than uh present scholarship may uh allow for so there there's my there's my heavily weighted and guarded statement <laughs> but uh yeah no uh, the fascinating and a fascinating illustration of of, uh, of Jesus uh, really um, uh, being this original teacher who is uh, at this this pivotal um, shift and uh, responding to it. So uh, in this in this schema, we also have a, a third phase, a third stage, a third level, a third development in consciousness. Uh, what is it called? Uh, are we in it right now? And and how can understanding the third phase help us to understand uh, Christianity in the modern world right here, right now? Yeah, so Barfield, um, he got on onto, onto all this and started wondering about it because of the crisis of meaning um, in our own times. And he experienced this very directly. Remember that figures like him and Lewis and Tolkien, um, they um, knew um, directly the First World War, um, this experience that was only possible in the modern world when mechanistic machines were used as mass killing devices in the trenches of the First World War. Um, you know, they experience the dark side of the modern scientific age, literally and immediately. And Barfield himself experienced this as a period of depression uh, where he actually became quite suicidal because he felt that meaning was just draining out of the world even around him. Um, but he discovered poetry, particularly, um, and realised that words don't just speak to now, they do convey older meanings and that part of the gift of the poet say in the modern period, romantic poets like Wordsworth and Coleridge, was to release maybe forgotten energies um, in the reading of their poems that still actually a life and a vitality that we can align to. And in the modern period, deliberately and consciously, imaginatively, intuitively, really actively need to do so, if as it were, were to save our times. And um, you might say that in the first period, of Christianity um, into the high flourishing of the medieval period. You know, there are lots of struggles, there are lots of questions, lots of disputes, um, but no one really doubted, for example, that God existed, God had a, a part in life, and a, a key part of our life was to learn how to relate to the divine. It's only really in the modern period that that has been fundamentally questioned. Um, and so Barfield um, retold the story of Christianity, recovering, I think, um, a lot of this old um, Gnostic mystical ideas um, in so doing um, in order to address our times and to try to start to overcome the crisis of meaning. And it's through 
um, use of things like the imagination is through the recognition that we're not just isolated sparks of consciousness lost in a black nothingness um, that, you know, that seems to fill the cosmos. But actually, by tuning into our inner life, um, we can start to understand that meaning is not just something of our own creation, but that it's part and parcel of where we're born from. And connecting back with that is a key part of um, modern Christianity. And, and, you know, I think that that's why there's such interest in ancient Gnosticism, because maybe one of the things which people are trying to do, and maybe you know this very directly, is to connect to older traditions where this still was alive, feel the spirit of that, but not just to try and go back, but to remake it for our times. You know, yeah. if there's an evolution of consciousness, it doesn't stop as well. So this is never a, ultimately a nostalgic exercise. It's always to work out what it means for now. And it's really crucial for now. I have absolutely no doubt about that. Yeah, well, I really like uh, something we talk a lot about on the show is the sort of links between um, uh, art and mysticism and religion. And I really like that that reenchantment of the world, the importance of this of the shift in consciousness in the world that we live in now, uh, where art and poetry and writing and creative expression become even more important, essential than they ever were before, arguably, if I'm, if I'm understanding you correctly. And uh, yeah, I think you're right. I think modern Gnosticism is part of that and we spend a lot of time talking about um how you know we're not trying to be second century Cephians, right <laughs> it's not we are you know we, we are drawing on lots of ancient uh threads uh we have very ancient traditions very ancient texts but we live in the 21st century and if somehow i could completely recreate every simple single thing the Cephians were doing we don't you know there's a lot that we don't know that they're up to i probably wouldn't want to because that was then and this is now so we have to find uh, a gnosticism that that works for the modern age so, so talking about making things work for the modern age, uh, Mark, what would you say is the Christian message and what would you say is not the Christian message? And to clarify, is there something that, that people think is a Christian message but actually isn't? Yeah, look, this is a huge question because there's Christianities. <laughs> there's not one Christianity. Yeah. Um, but just yeah. the kind of my sense, at least, of the Christianity, which I know something of, which is, um, you know, Broadly, Western Christianity, it's actually even narrower than that. Most directly, it's kind of English Christianity. But nonetheless, I think there are, you know, there are, there are common threads across, certainly at least the Anglo-American world. Um, and you, sometimes I think of it like this, you know, you might say that there's, um, there's keen interest in some parts of Christianity, for example, in things like social justice. Um, and there's no doubt that's valuable. Um, but I think it risks trying to produce fruits without having the roots um, and if you don't have a mystical sense of the kingdom of God being born within you the incarnation that really mattering being the one that's occurring in your soul right now then you um, the, the risk you run is by as the fruits withering on the vine you know kind of exhausting yourself and so on and, and Christianity becomes a very moral kind of finger wagging activity um, and you so you get disputes and fights within Christian churches about very narrow really moral issues so I think that's a part a sign of the roots um, aren't being put down. Um, and so you see Christianity in that domain eating itself. Um, I think another quite common mistake in the modern world is the trying to find roots, but instead substituting real roots with peak experiences. And so you get charismatic Christianity, where when Christians gather together, they set themselves up in a frame to have a powerful experience. And I've no doubt they do have powerful experiences as well. But the risk is it's kind of conjured up within the group 
rather than really rooted in the inside of the whole world in the divine and which tends to be a much quieter stiller um calmer kind of experience that's actually known beneath the level of manifest feeling um it's a kind of intuition um that seems to grow from the darkest deepest but nonetheless most alive part of yourself actually outside of yourself um and so Figures like Meister Eichhardt in the medieval period understood this and wrote about it in that way. I think they would have been horrified that people felt that the peak experience was the greatest experience of the divine. You know, all the great um, mystics of the medieval period, like Teresa of Avila and others said, look, sometimes these strange things happen, but broadly speaking, ignore them. They're not the real deal. They're something to do with our own psyche, kind of bubbling up, turning itself over, exciting itself and so on. What really matters is what happens on the on the other side of the dark night of the soul when you discover the divine utterly resilient utterly present outside of yourself and yet most also deeply imminent within yourself as well and it's through that process of dying and being reborn in this completely new way that we discover the truth of things um, and so that for me is what's often missing in modern Christianity and the reason is is because to know this you've got to really undergo it yourself you can't just read about it Um, and my concern certainly in the the leadership of the Christianity I knew in the Church of England um, very few people are interested in that even actually Um, you know they put it down to new age personal development and call it narcissistic or something and then get very excited about social justice or get very excited about peak experiences and then wonder why things seem to be disappearing, draining away, even as they pump more and more of this sort of higher level fruit kind of energy into things. It's because they've almost forgotten how to sink roots into the divine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so both of us have thrown this, this term around, uh, probably all three of us uh, in the space of uh, a little over half an hour, which is mysticism. Uh, what is it? What's your definition for it? And, and doesn't it belong in other religions, say like Buddhism or Hinduism or Taoism or something and, and not Christianity? Yeah, I mean, I do, I do think there is a form of uh, perennial philosophy um, that reaches across all traditions as you'd expect if you're a monotheist, because if you're a monotheist, God isn't as a way your own private possession, but contains the whole of reality. So it shouldn't be surprising that other traditions in their mystical, and by that I just mean they're kind of, where the, the primacy nowadays is given to the interior life. That's where the roots are found, and then it manifests in the fruits of one's external life. I and mean, it often takes quite a long time for that to kind of fully work its way through. Um, of course, because we're complex creatures and can be different things in different moments. Um, But nonetheless, I think it's not surprising that um, people that, um, say, are immersed in in mystical traditions um, do discover that there are parallels from other parts of the world as well. I mean, the, the, the core thread I feel that most plausibly to me is onto this is what's known as the non-dual tradition. Um, so in Indian, Indian philosophy, we call it Advaita Vedanta. In Islam, it'd be the Sufis' perception that everything carries the divine face. Um, within Christianity, it would be, say, summed up in an expression like Meister Eichhardt's again, that my eye and God's eye is one eye and one sight and one mind and one voice and so on. Um, incidentally, Meister Eichhardt was quite clear he's not God. 
um, but nonetheless that he could identify the divine within him and over the course of his life try and live more and more from that um, different identification. Um, so that's why I think that, uh, that that's what I mean by this word mystical um, and also why I think you do find different reflections of it in different traditions as well. Yeah. Uh, Bishop Laney, any uh, questions, comments, follow-ups? Well, you know, there's a question that fascinates me on the sheet here, um, and the, it's at the very end, and it's uh, is, there's a common idea that the churches in the West are dying. Are they, and if so, how do we save them? And I, I'd be interested, of course, of hearing anybody, everybody's opinion on that, but I've always kind of had a problem with this presumption, which is not to say that there certainly hasn't been a decline in church membership and attendance. Um, but one of my concerns is, is that uh, very often there, there are a lot of churches uh, here in the United States and certainly over um, in Europe and in the, in the United Kingdom um, that have been around for a very long time and their numbers have waxed and waned and maybe they're on the wane in some cases, but they are still living congregations. They are still participating, functioning. They are working together. And you're talking really about deep roots um, versus peak experiences. And I'm wondering if a focus on um, church numbers at a given point in time uh, does not account for a, a, a much broader stepping back and looking at a, a, a history um, that you sometimes do not see, you will not necessarily see in alternative movements, whether they are brand new mega churches that have only been around for a few decades and they may come and go, or alternative movements, psychotherapy movements uh, that come and go. And yet, when you compare them to some churches, yes, there may be a dwindling in numbers at various times, but they are still consistently operating and, and coming together for worship. So I guess that that's kind of a bit of commentary on my part, but I'd love to hear what everybody else has to think about it. Sure. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, th I think you're right about um, it's a very complex picture. And again, you, you know, you, you, you would expect not for religiosity just to die away as if the default for human beings when you um, take everything else away is a kind of materialism, um, you know, that's, that's just a kind of mechanized view of reality with a bit of ethics put on top um, because you know we are all manifestations of the divine in our multiple ways um, and so what I think is actually happening is that when institutions do go through rocky periods and they they certainly are in the UK um, mm -hmm. although I think it is different in different parts of the world too mm -hmm. which is complex because it's cultural reasons and all the rest of it and as you say just the kind of momentum of history um, but nonetheless when institutions do, do go through rocky periods it's not just that people stop going to church, but you see bubbling up all sorts of other experiments. And I, you know, I work as a psychotherapist, as you said at the top, and um, I think psychotherapy is part of this bubbling up. I mean, Jung himself said this, um, he said that um, in certainly Western Europe um, and Northern Europe, he noticed it particularly in Protestant countries more than in Roman Catholic countries, um, the kind of old wisdom, the old art of relating to your inner life through rituals and so on, had lost its potency, it become a bit dead. Um, and so he felt that psychotherapy emerged to try and fill that vacuum, to build a kind of wisdom base about how to relate to ourselves. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, as, as, as Charles Taylor, the Canadian philosopher puts it, what you actually see is a kind of supernova, a kind of explosion 
of different spiritualities, as well as the rejection of spirituality altogether. That, that much more characterizes our time, I think. Yeah, I, I agree with both of you, and I, I think the the death of Christianity has been has been overhyped. So I definitely put greatly that question in there because it's a common one. Yes, greatly exaggerated. Uh, the uh, that said, obviously, I, I don't think uh, you know there's still there's still hopes for for a great revival in, uh, in our lifetime, and I don't think we're going to see uh, the formal church attendance and formal Christianity come back to even the rates that it was out of the 1990s. But uh, I do agree, you know, you know, Bishop Laney with the, with the presentism. You know, you can look at before the first great revival, or maybe in between the first and second great revival in the United States. You, there's um, there's people traveling from Europe, right? And they're talking about, oh, the Americans are particularly unchurched people. <laughs> there's there's barely any churches in any of the places that I visit. Nobody seems interested in going on Sundays. And of course, you know, the great revivals happen. There's there's a great influx of religiosity. That old idea of, of America being a non-religious place is, is swept away. So these things do come in waves and societies can change quite radically. Um, and uh, just like Mark was saying, um, religiosity bubbles up. So, and it transforms and it changes. And of course, we do see uh, interest stuff happening in Christianity, which which I think even you and I are part of, uh, Bishop Laney, uh, you know, smaller alternative churches. I mean, you know, the, the, the Gnostic churches are growing every year. Yeah, not by very yeah. much, but, uh, no, you know. But, they're, but they're, 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 they're demonstrating they're resilience. Yes. Yeah. But, you know, I also think that part of the Christian message and part of this internalization of the kingdom is to experience time, not just as historical time, but as Kairos time, and to expect the bubbling up in every moment um, you know, mm. Paul would call it messianic time and we're invited to try and increasingly live, as it were, vertically in our lives as well as horizontally across the course of our lives. And so to be looking for these eruptions um, mm. in the small ways, aligning to them, nurturing them, fostering them and so deepening life once more. And so, you know, in a way, our times are precisely what we would expect. It's a it's a time full of pregnant possibility as well as the, the story which the historians might try and tell. Yes, exactly. Well, it's, it's been a, a fascinating discussion. And uh, I, I, as always, this is, what, this is what I say at the end of every show, and I don't want people to think that I'm inauthentic because it's true. We could have gone for hours. I have so many more <laughs> questions, Dr. Vernon. But uh, we should let you get back to your life. Before we let you go, I, I believe your uh, your website's markvernon.com. Is that right? Is there anything you would like to tell people about or promotions uh, and what have you? Yeah, no, thank you. I mean, you know, if you find the ideas of Barfield um, interesting, and I think they really are, then do have a look at my website and maybe even pick up a copy of my book. Um, I've been working on Dante too. I think that Dante has got a lot to tell us. Actually, he, you know, he lived and wrote at a time of crisis in Christianity as well. You know, when the Franciscan movement was disturbing the medieval church and lots of other movements as well, like the Beguines, tremendous mystical movements, in fact. Um, so I've got a book on Dante coming out. So, you know, watch out for that. And I'm trying to write it very much to help Dante illuminate our own times as well as to uh, provide a way into his great book. So, yeah, keep it. I post podcasts and YouTubes and so on. This is sort of my life's mission as well. So do take a look. 
Yeah, amazing. And uh, definitely uh, let us know when the Dante book comes out because we'd love to have you back on to, sure. to discuss it. And uh, my plugs are uh, mylandmeditation.substack.com. If you're listening and not watching, I know I slur and have an accent. So it's mylandmeditation.substack.com. Every Sunday morning, just about every Sunday morning at 11 a.m., open secular meditation. Great for everybody. It's not explicitly religious. It's not Gnostic meditation, though if you are a Gnostic or a religious person or a mystic, you will probably get a lot out of it. But it's psychological, secular-based mix of quiet and guided. We've got a good crowd that comes out. It's free. Feel free to join us uh, uh, anytime. That's going to stay online. Uh, I am actually going to start doing it in person once um, I'm allowed to, but I'm going to set up the webcam and uh, people who uh, can remotely join us. And uh, Bishop Laney, do you have any plugs? Um, yes, I have reignited, so to speak, my candle ministry. I do not have a site set up for it at this point, but if you, uh, you can find me on uh, on Facebook, uh, Laney Peterson, um, you can check, you know, you can uh, re request that I set a light for you or a family member or a friend. Uh, all intentions are welcome as our religious persuasion. I try to keep uh, the candle service, which I do stream, live stream, as, as shall we say, spiritual but not religious as possible, <laughs> simply because I want to extend this ministry of attention to everybody. Um, eventually, I'll be getting a new site up for it, but that is going on right now. Fantastic. Okay. Well, uh, thanks so much, Dr. Vernon, for joining us. Thanks so much to everybody watching and listening. And uh, this is Deacon Jonathan signing off. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye.